This is the Lightning Junkies Podcast with your host, Chaz Cryptoson. On this episode of the podcast, we have Daniel Goldman, and we're contrasting Bitcoin and Ethereum Layer 2 solutions. What? Did you just say Ethereum? Did you just say Ethereum on my Bitcoin Lightning podcast? How dare you, sir? This is totally unacceptable. I would like to speak to your manager. All that being said, I don't think it's actually a bad thing that we have Daniel on the, on the podcast today. My main goal with getting this information on here is not to cheerlead for Ethereum or to otherwise promote it or see it as a good thing. The goal of, of this episode is to focus on the technology as much as possible and try to see what ways Ethereum's different developments can actually assist Bitcoin and not have us actually compromise on our ethos at the same time. Later on in the episode, we actually get into a lot of those more controversial topics. You know, we get into Bitcoin scaling, we get into the block size, we talk about social layers, we talk about the pre-mine on Ethereum, we talk about quite a bit more as well. So I hope you stay tuned for the entire episode and don't let the clickbaity type bullshit that I no doubt put for this title dissuade you or otherwise discourage you from, from listening all the way through. I apologize that I didn't have a show last week and that I was a day late uploading this one. I'll definitely try to do better in the future. Um, I have just fallen behind with the holidays and, uh, you know, to be quite frank, just the, the depression has not been super great lately, but I'm powering through the best I can here. So I'm trying something new this month. I still don't have any official sponsors, but I'm going to go ahead and try something here with SparkSwap. SparkSwap is a service that allows you to use your fiat currency to purchase Bitcoin on the Lightning Network directly. I've been using it since since launch, and it's the one of two ways that I happen to buy Bitcoin presently. Either using SparkSwap or I use the Cash App. Personally, my setup is a Zap wallet on my desktop paired with SparkSwap. They automatically opened up a channel with me when I started using their service. I bought my sats, and within seconds, those sats were spendable with either within that Zap wallet or within a different wallet that I happen to control. I think SparkSwap pairs really well with something like Fold, Moon, or BitRefill, because if you're able to save money on things like Amazon using the Lightning Network, why not use your fiat to buy Bitcoin and then immediately spend it on things you might already be spending your money on, just giving you a bigger ability to stack sats or otherwise save money. If you want to give SparkSwap a try, you can sign up using my link. It's tinyurl.com forward slash lnjspark. Again, that URL is tinyurl.com forward slash lnjspark. In order to stack 100,000 sats for clicking on this link, you just need to buy $15 worth of Bitcoin and you're good to go. Just a quick disclaimer, I also get paid out 100,000 sats as well. But if you want to support the podcast, this is an easy way to do that and be able to sign up for a good service that I genuinely use and like. If anyone out there ever has any questions on Bitcoin or the Lightning Network or just wants to start using it for the first time, don't ever hesitate to reach out to me. I would be happy to give you resources to learn more or directly give you recommendations based upon my experience with the Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. 
I think it's been long enough. Let's go ahead and jump into this episode so we can get on with you yelling at me on Twitter about it, okay? Sounds great. Go ahead and welcome Daniel to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing uh, today, Daniel? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, I had you join me on the podcast here very last minute. Haven't even, you know, taken any notes or written up anything. We're just going to do this by the seat of our pants. And I think we're going to have a decent amount of information come out of this. The main reason why we're going to have you on the show here, I think, is to analyze the various different layer two solutions out there. Maybe not exhaustively, but some of the bigger ones and try to compare and contrast to the Lightning Network uh, with a uh, Bitcoin here. Before we do all that, I wanted to just do the the basic, you know, podcasty type thing and just get your general background maybe before even getting into Bitcoin or crypto generally. I actually studied math and philosophy just as an undergrad. I think on, on some level I was preparing for, for the advent of cryptocurrency, I guess. Yeah, so I was a developer and I, I think it was in 2011, although I'm not totally sure, uh, a good friend of mine, we were having lunch and he mentioned this thing called Bitcoin. And what's I think probably unusual is that for me, I was like instantly sold in that conversation. Like if we had audio of that conversation, it would probably be kind of embarrassing because I was just like immediately just swallowing everything, especially like sort of the political implications. I thought this was like potential for, you know, it, an exciting opportunity to explore some of these kind of crazier out there voluntarist ideas. So even before I really understood how it worked, I was sort of just like mentally vaguely filling in the gaps. And, you know, we just like talked about it all day into the night. And I think even that night I was like already, you know, I think we had like a, we had dinner with some family friends. I was already like almost evangelizing it, honestly. Over the years, I sort of followed what was going on in the space from a distance. I did buy some fairly early, obviously not as much as I wish and not as early as I wish as, as is usual, but I did get some. And yeah, I, I sort of followed, I was interested, but I didn't cross that line into being fully obsessed then in part because this is something um, I think people kind of forget or don't talk about, but sort of at the time before the big, you know, the more recent, uh, the more recent boom and in interest in these past few years, it was really a lot harder to get good information, especially if you're interested on a technical level. Pre-2017, I would say, you, there just wasn't as much available in terms of resources. Um, there just wasn't as much written about it. And, you know, the sort of media coverage was always very shallow, and very vague. So if you wanted to get a, more of a technical understanding, you kind of had to dig into like Bitcoin talk threads and things like that, which if you weren't, you know, it was a bit of a, it could be a bit intimidating. And I just didn't at the time quite cross that line of obsession. Unfortunately, if I could go back, obviously I would push myself. I mean, yeah, so I kind of followed it from a distance and, you know, generally would tell people about it and sort of evangelize to, you know, friends and family and, you know, whoever was unfortunate enough to be around me at the time. Eventually, actually, you know, to be honest, once Mount Gox happened, I sort of embarrassed to say this now, but at the time I thought like, okay, that's going to be just a drastic setback for many years. And I thought it would take a very long time to recover in terms of just having a decent enough public perception to make any grounds, which was semi-true, but I did not think things would fire up again that quickly. So that surprised me. So I sort of probably lost track of things around then. It was really uh, what got me back into it and eventually got me sort of fully into it in a way that I can, I can get into is around probably late 2016, uh, the same friend actually who tipped me off to Bitcoin was like, um, you know, there's this thing called Ethereum now and you should look into it. He's sort of less, less technically minded than I am. Uh, so he kind of wanted me to look into it. I started digging in and I was just like, what the hell is this? And what are they talking about? And I couldn't quite 
understand what they've meant when they're talking about there's a currency, but this platform on top of it and you could build things. So um, digging into that, I became very intrigued and that um, kind of inspired me to dig back into Bitcoin and kind of learning about both in parallel, Bitcoin and Ethereum and understanding the technical trade-offs that are there and the trade-offs that were made with Bitcoin. Um, somehow that's what sort of sent me down the rabbit hole initially. I particularly got very interested in some of the scaling debates going on and kind of the, oh, I don't know, the sort of broader philosophical implications of the scaling debates, I guess. And yeah, at a certain point on the, uh, down that line, I just kind of became obsessed. And somewhere in there, actually, with this, uh, this same friend and, uh, and a third friend, we, we started a small business, basically doing uh, client-based work, technical consulting, technical due diligence in the, in the kind of crypto space, things like that. We had a lot of fun and, you know, managed to pay the bills, so I can't complain. But I think being more directly in the world full time like that, I, uh, what you inevitably see and what we certainly saw is that, you know, to be very blunt, the majority of the projects out there and the things going on are just kind of bullshit. And, you know, that sort of uh, pretty quickly just changed the way I saw the space in general. And eventually it just it just started wearing us down because it was like especially when you do client-based work, you have to like cast this very wide net. And then most of our conversations were just like, okay, no, we definitely can't work with these people. Or if we are going to move forward, it's just going to be us convincing them not to do what they want to do. <laughs> no, you don't need a blockchain. And I don't think you know what that means. And no, you shouldn't do an ICO. And I don't think you know what that means. And at this point, you know, I, I sort of work more independently doing software development, consulting, a lot of the same things, but basically are only get directly involved in things that are, are more directly aligned with my interests, I would say. And my main interests at this point are with layer two scalability, as you said, on the on the Bitcoin and Ethereum side. With you know all the cards on the table, I am one of the people, one of the increasingly few people, it seems, who's sort of interested and kind of optimistic about both Bitcoin and Ethereum. And uh, yeah, so happy to happy to get into that as well. But I guess that's a general overview. I guess the only other thing is you know I also write uh, with our company. We had a company blog, and I've um, published uh, just independently at the block as well. And I write on generally on like technical matters and touch on some of the broader issues, but yeah. Okay, a lot to unpack there. So we'll definitely jump into uh, quite a few of those topics here. That was a lot. Yeah, forgive me. Yeah, feel free to interrupt me at any point. I can ramble sometimes. Oh, sure. You know what? Honestly, I feel like maybe that's one of my uh, less good skills there is just being able to mm -hmm. jump in. I tend to let people <laughs> just ramble as much as they want to. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, okay, so the main thing that I wanted to jump back into here first was, so it sounds like your primary interest in Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. was the technology portion. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I would say so. So would you say that the economic you know, piece attached to Bitcoin are just less interesting or just less kind of geared towards your you know, previous career, stuff like that? Um, I wouldn't say that. I would say, you know, I would say, you know, the things that I feel um, I have a good understanding of and that I kind of focus on are the technological developments. But I also think that one of the things you realize, and I think more and more people have realized this in this space, is that, uh, well, first of all, when you're talking about, quote unquote, this technology, if you remove the economic factor altogether, like with some of these, I don't know, proprietary blockchain projects, it essentially stops making any sense. So I, you know, I guess what I'm getting at is I think the, the economic factors are sort of inseparable from the technical ones. Okay. And I would say even more broadly, the sort of, uh, I don't even know what word to use, but the philosophical or moral and even political considerations are sort of inseparable from the technical ones as well, uh, which is part of what makes this stuff so interesting to me, I think. So, no, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely interested in analyzing these things as economic systems too, but I would say like, 
I definitely have more of a technical background than an economic one. To be honest, a lot of what I know about finance and even economics has come from being in this space, which would probably horrify someone who's in the traditional finance world, I guess. So yeah, that's more that's the technical stuff is more what I feel qualified to talk about. But definitely interested in all. Okay. That definitely makes a lot of sense there. You know, what was the the favorite part of Bitcoin or the favorite part of Ethereum that really kind of pulled you in at the end of the day, maybe uh finally in twenty sixteen where you finally said, you know what, I need to actually jump into this thing. Yeah, it was probably um the probably some of the scaling debates and particularly these questions around layer two scalability which i'm which i'm sure we'll get into um you know i mean on a fundamental level obviously i sort of want to see i want to see bitcoin succeed and i want to see ethereum succeed because i sort of think having this um this kind of parallel financial universe of um where people can sort of transact anonymously or pseudo anonymously and we can have these disintermediated layers it could be a very positive thing in all sorts of ways and it seemed like the technical challenges to get there were going to be these very big obstacles. And yeah, I mean, there was this sort of, again, this kind of political level interest, but I also just found the technical questions to be interesting on a more academic level, particularly around scalability. And I think weighing into those debates, um, it was clear that there's a lot of fascinating work being done, but it was also clear that a lot of people uh, sort of dipping their toes in it didn't understand some important things and things were being maybe misrepresented or, or overemphasized or underemphasized and things like that. And um, I don't know, it's just sort of how my brain works that when I see people like misthinking, uh, I have this impulse to like weigh in and try to clear things up, I guess. So I think a lot of the stuff I've written is sort of has that motivation of just trying to help people better understand it. Um, yeah slightly vague answer but hopefully that gives you some sense yeah it definitely does so the next piece that i would you know uh want to touch on here is okay so we kind of mentioned bitcoin we kind of mentioned ethereum when was the first time you actually used a operational uh, layer two system and for this particular example i would prefer something that does not uh you know that might technically count like a, a coinbase is like off chain maybe not a mm -hmm. layer two but um, I prefer like an actual like protocol. So in this example, you know, first time you use lightning, the first time you used any other layer two protocol, not necessarily a, you know, just off chain database sort of thing. Sure. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm happy to get into that distinction between off chain and layer two. I'm not sure we'll dig deeper into that. I think so. Actually, the I think it's fair to say that the first ever mobile lightning payment was I was present for and it was like almost done on my phone. Um, so this was, um, at a lightning conference in Berlin and, um, was with, uh, 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 Rene Picard, who's writing the mastering or, you know, he's involved in this mastering lightning book coming out. We got connected cause I had written something about lightning and, uh, he had a node set up and at this, this bar in Berlin, I'm blinking out on the name now, but it's a famous one. They accepted crypto very early. Uh, they accepted Bitcoin very early. Room 77. Yes. Thank you. So yeah, there he had, he had a node set up kind of custodially a lightning node. Although he was running it himself, so I guess the question is, where was he running it? But it may have been on a, on a third-party service. And yeah, we tried to do it on my phone. It didn't work, but only because my phone was shitty at the time. I'm kind of crashed. Not, it, was not, um, it was not the fault of him or the tech. Yeah, I um, saw that happen in action, which was pretty cool. I just I say that partially to establish some, some Bitcoin cred, uh, creds, because I'm sure some people have just stopped listening when they heard Ethereum already. I've also used, um, I, th I think that, that, that may have been the first time somewhere in there, I used the Zap desktop wallet and uh purchased a few things with lightning and it is very cool when you see it in action um that sort of gut feeling you get when you see how fast it is 
is uh, is pretty awesome. So uh, yeah, I was both that sort of, um, it was exciting having sort of been reading about this stuff and thinking about it academically to finally use it. But also when you use it, you you realize there's a lot of a lot of work to be done on the UX side, particularly in just setting it up. It's definitely, even as a, you know, as a developer who sort of has some experience with DevOps and things like that, you know, it's hard to imagine somebody without that background going through this, although it is getting better. But uh, yeah, I've definitely used it. Um, I don't run a node at the moment, a lightning node, but uh, for a bit, um, I did. So I do know what that's like. A uh, travesty. Unfortunately, you will be ejected off the podcast starting now. I figured. Yeah, I was waiting for that. <laughs> to be honest. Right. Just to be clear, this was uh, the, at the uh, Lightning Hackathon last year? This was in 2018, if I'm not, if I have that right. Yes. Uh, 2018. Oh, yeah. So, so two years ago, technically. I forgot it's, it's uh, 2020. My 2020, no, that's right. Did your adventures into uh, off-chain slash layer two solutions uh, stop there? No. Um, in terms of stuff I've used, I, have, I haven't I have really used any of the sidechain stuff, but um, I have sort of messed around with things on the Ethereum side. So some of the some of the channel and channel network setup. So this was, uh, I guess they were originally calling themselves counterfactual. I think now they're just calling themselves state channels. Generally, they've had some tech that I've sort of done some development with and just kind of played around with it. Also the Connext wallet and there, that's one of the networks that's live. I've, I've used that, which is pretty cool. I am definitely interested in Plasma and I've, I've, I've written about it and I've messed around with things, but that was sort of strictly testnet stuff. Um, that's still uh, farther from farther from production ready. Most certainly. Other than that's the only I would say like layer two or layer two related Bitcoin thing I've done is the is the lightning tech and Zapple and things like that. Yeah, a few other things on the Ethereum side that I've that I've directly messed with. Okay, let's go ahead and jump in into those a little bit. They're the sidechain project that has the XDAI token that allows you to send your, you know, DAI basically off chain to people and it's really fast, etc. Is that right? Oh yeah, so that's that's actually a different one that I've also used them. So that is, um, yeah, that's more of a, a federated sidechain thing. Got it. Which is called XDAI, and that's yes, yeah, so that's more of a trusted federation. I have used that as well. Now that you mentioned it, no, but the one I was referring to was counterfactual slash state channels. That's a that's a channel network project. So that's more of a, a trustless layer two system. As again, we can talk more about that distinction. Okay, so maybe since I don't know what the hell you're talking about here, you'll go ahead and let me know. So. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. So I guess, so you mentioned this kind of off-chain layer two distinction, and it sounds like by the way you framed it, I kind of use those terms the same way or think about it the same way. It's always kind of tricky because, you know, there's no single, there's no single authority out there to define these things for us, right? So people use the terms differently. So for some people, layer two, they would use that to be very broad, even to include things, as you said, like having your money on Coinbase or something. Um, for other people, it's, it's a little more narrow. Um, but I, I use it the more narrow way. So I guess, um, yeah, we can start with, let's just say, as you said, off-chain is generally anything that doesn't involve using the base layer directly. Um, so probably we don't have to go into the scalability issues. I think probably your listeners are pretty familiar with that. But, you know, in short, using the base chain means everything has to be validated by everybody running a node. And everybody in the future who syncs up a node has to validate it as well. And, uh, you know, in other words, every update has to be global. And that's just a very inefficient way, a very inefficient way to do things as far as like uh, software engineering principles are concerned. Yeah. So the idea is to make this more efficient. Okay. Let's just offload some of this work other places being very broad. And that first distinction between sort of um, layer two and other off-chain protocols we can make by uh, drawing this line between those which require additional trust assumptions and those that don't. 
So requiring additional trust assumptions, the simplest version is just trusting a third party, like using Coinbase. Okay, that's off chain. Other sorts of trust assumptions you might use are, as we mentioned, things like side chains, uh, XDAI, uh, the liquid side chain, and so on, where we have a federation. Uh, I should say a federated sidechain in particular, where the new trust assumption there is where we're relying on, you know, an, an honest majority or an honest supermajority of this federation. I think things like state chains would be in this category too, which I think you did a whole show on state chains. So if people want details, they can listen to that. But my understanding, if I remember correctly, is that in those cases, you have a, a sidechain-like mechanism where there's this operator and there is a scenario where the you know you, you end up having this kind of multi-sig setup where you actually give your private keys or give one side of the private keys to the operator and there is this scenario where the operator can collude with other members um in theory and steal your funds essentially i think it, it's sort of difficult it involves some coordination and i also think there's this nice property where if they you have like fraud evidence so if they do it it'll be very obvious to somebody else to a human being looking but you can't actually do anything within the protocol so the fact that there's some additional trust assumption there, I would say, puts it kind of on that side. And then, yeah, on, on the other side, the things that I would call layer two are systems that any system that we can transact, somehow it's more efficient than using layer one to be very broad. Um, some of the data is kept off chain. Some of the work is kept off chain, something like that. But we are not taking on any additional trust assumptions beyond just the base layer itself. Obviously, the base layer has to keep working. The right, because if the base layer fails, layer two is going to be in trouble too. So we take on those, and then there might be some more work you have to do. Um, there might be some inconvenient things, but every all of that is dependent on software that you yourself control and you yourself run. There might be additional security assumptions, let's say, but you're not trusting any additional third parties. So that's sort of the space that I'm interested in, and where I think that's, I mean, Lightning certainly falls in that category. And then there's there's other kind of families of construction that that you've alluded to that are going on on the Ethereum side that I think are. Um, are interesting as well. Um, and uh, there's sort of interesting discussions about to what extent those are possible or might be possible in the future on Bitcoin. Yeah, so that's, I guess that's, that's the first key distinction we should make, taking on trust assumptions. I think Matt Corallo is the one who gave that definition of, you know, relies on security of the base layer and software that you yourself run. And I kind of like that. I think a, a, another way to sort of think about it that um, we can kind of circle back to is to get more specific about trust assumptions, you're not relying on any assumptions about, I guess, about data availability. So that's kind of what it all comes down to. And this, this took me a while to grasp, but ultimately a trust assumption means that you're relying that someone else won't withhold data from you. So yeah, I guess like within that layer two category, I guess the first split we can make is between channels and these other things. We can call them like non-custodial side chains or trustless side chains. And that's where some of the plasma stuff comes in. With channels, so Lightning is in this category, uh, I think a nice way to formally make, draw this line, formally define those is the parties that are participating in a channel, which is often just um, often just two parties, although in principle it could be, could be more than two when you get to things like channel factories and so on. Every party involved sort of has to give full consent for every, for every state update. You have to get unanimous consent. So when we update a Lightning channel, you're making this payment, the parties kind of interact, they both effectively sign off on the latest payment in one way, shape, or form. And that's when it's considered valid, right? So yeah, so that, that gives us Lightning. There's different channel constructions. The one that's used in Lightning now is like Kuhn Dryage channels, or at least something kind of like them, something like what came out of the Lightning white paper, even though it may have been modified a bit where effectively what you do is you say, okay, we're going to keep making these updates. We agree on the latest state. And then, you know, presumably eventually we're going to sort of cash that out at the end, sort of like updating a bar tab or something. The challenge is guaranteeing that only that latest state gets cashed out. And with Poondraja channels, what you effectively do is you say, anytime I make a payment uh, to you, 
I also give you the ability to invalidate the last one. Um, so if I settle with an old channel, uh, I try to claim, you know, claim funds that sort of aren't the last line on the balance sheet. You have this, you have this pre-image of this hash, this key that lets you just claim all of those funds. So you kind of punish me by just taking all the funds in the channel. And that's, that's one approach. There are other approaches that sort of get you the same result, but um, are ideally better in some ways. So on Bitcoin, there's, there's this, uh, this proposal called L2, which I'm sure you've talked about at some point. The idea with L2, instead of sort of having these, uh, these revocations of old state, you can sort of just use the latest state. So if I try to cash out an old state, you can just update it to the latest one. So, in, so this is arguably nicer in a few ways, uh, because now I don't need to sort of maintain all this data for all the old channel states. I only need the latest one. So that's less of a burden. And it also means we don't have punishments anymore, which is arguably better. This way, if there's a bug in the software, if there's an honest mistake, you won't get punished for it. It'll just sort of fast forward to the latest state. So this is this is sort of already one of the one of the little one of the splits and one of the things that where the tech diverges from the Bitcoin and Ethereum side is with L2. So it's currently not possible. It requires some some new opcodes. And uh, at least the initial proposal with L2 requires SIG hash no input which from what I've seen, it's actually a little trickier than maybe it first appeared. There's various problems with it and it's kind of a, kind of a whole debate going on. And uh, from what I've heard, it might, it just, there's a chance that it doesn't quite happen, at least with SIG hash no input. Now there may be other ways to get L2 things, but the point is it requires some protocol change. But this style of channel where you just update to the latest state, that is possible on Ethereum already. And in fact, the, the project I mentioned, uh, State Channels Counterfactual is, is effectively doing that, where you have these channels, you can just, agree on the latest state and you just have sort of a nonce associated with it, um, this number that just keeps incrementing. So if we've agreed on state 30, state 30 is the only valid one. And the details, we can have anything be involved in the details. It doesn't even have to just be a payment. It can be some some weird smart contract sort of thing. So that's one example where, you know, the, uh, the sort of flexibility of the base layer actually does directly give you some more power to do these channel constructions, which is interesting. Of course, the trade-off is flexibility on the base layer has a lot of other downsides on layer one, and that's, that's a whole other debate to be had. That's the basic idea of channels. And even within channels, we can talk about various other mechanisms that exist in Ethereum where you can do, do certain things, ways of handling liquidity differently, ways of routing sort of differently um, that, the, that the scripting lets you do. Uh, does that make sense so far anyway? I don't want to keep running. Yeah, that was, that was quite a bit there. So we're going to have to go back through, uh, you know, some of what you said here. Yeah, please. The first thing that's in my head here is, you know, I've definitely heard of, you know, Plasma on Ethereum and that whole idea, you know, Vitalik, I think, has been, you know, pumping that idea for years, if I'm remembering correctly. I have always just generally never cared enough to actually go research it intensely. <laughs> you know, I I know it's a thing. I know it kind of exists. I, I know it's not in production in the same way that Lightning might be. Mm-hmm. It's still kind of early, et cetera. Um, do you want to kind of let the listeners know how uh, Plasma works to kind of give them a general idea? Sure. So first of all, I would say, you know, not caring enough to really dig into it is perfectly reasonable. Um, there's a lot going on in the crypto space and that, you know, everyone can't follow everything. And especially if you're in the Bitcoin world, totally reasonable to focus on Bitcoin things. One thing that I generally push for is, you know, if I do have, if I do have some evil agenda here, it's not to, it's not to sell Bitcoiners on Ethereum tech, but to just sort of show that these constructions in and of themselves, A, are interesting and they're kind of worth wanting. So I just welcome more discussion about, you know, can these constructions be ported over into Bitcoin? And like I said, you know, to what extent are they possible and so on, which again, not every, that's sort of specialized knowledge and not everyone has to do that, but there are a small handful of researchers who sort of try to bridge the gap 
from one side and the other. And yeah, I just kind of think there should be more more cross-pollination there and so on. Yeah. Um, okay. So as far as plasma goes, so on the one side, we have channels with, so channels require unanimous update. The idea of plasma is essentially we don't have that requirement. That's the first thing to understand. So we have all these off-chain transactions and you can transact on this in this plasma system without all the parties involved sort of having to sign off on every update. So what this sort of looks more like is we have these transactions off-chain, they kind of get bundled together, hashed down into a block route that root gets put on chain. And the idea of just with that, that's enough to preserve this this trustless layer to a property. So just from how I described it there, you can see this sort of starts to look like its own blockchain, this this uh, this plasma system. Uh, we, you know, we're forming blocks and we're just publishing the, these the roots of the blocks on chain. So we can think of it as a side chain. I I kind of try to avoid the term side chain because that's one of those terms that's used so vaguely and so differently by different people. It, it just kind of seems meaningless at this point. I often point people to uh, Jorge, uh, Jorge Stolfi, I think that's how he pronounced his name, has a paper or has this essay called something like My Living Room Sofa is a Sidechain. And I think he's basically right. His Living Room Sofa is a Sidechain. It's just, it's just, it's a little too vaguely defined, but we can just sort of say a Sidechain. Okay. You sort of know it when you see it. You have this system that's like, there's a layer one, there's a main chain, a Sidechain is sort of dependent on layer one. It listens for updates on it. You can, so you can deposit things on the Sidechain. But layer one kind of doesn't care what's going on in the side chain, something like that. With Plasma, we're, we're, we're doing that sort of thing, but we want to do it non-custodially. So what this means in practice is, again, we have somebody producing blocks. Let's just call them the Plasma operator for now. And it can we can imagine it's centralized, for, at least for the moment. We can come back to that. But So it's entirely centralized. There's a single party in control, but we, we want it to be centralized but non-custodial, sort of the idea. So the operator publishes these blocks on-chain, or publishes rather just the Merkle roots of these blocks on-chain. And then off-chain sort of gives all the users enough data that they are guaranteed to maintain the custody of their funds. So that, so in other words, you have the ability to prove ownership of your funds at any point. And the complexity comes in with withdrawals, obviously. Um, you sort of do these games where you go back and forth proving. So, you know, so you might say something like your you're exiting with your funds. So you withdraw, you're claiming, yes, I own these here. And then someone else might say, no, here's proof that you spent them since then. You know, then there might be like a response to that of some sort. So you have this sort of this interactive game to prove ownership. Uh, it's a little hard to explain the details just out loud like this without a whiteboard or something. But that's where a lot of the, the real plasma mechanism is in, is in that exit game of how can we guarantee that even in the worst case scenario, you'll always be able to prove ownership of your coins. So, yeah, so I mean, there's key differences there with Lightning or with channels in general. The first one is you do need, this operator needs to interact with the main chain regularly. So every, you know, um, you need a main chain transaction sort of finalizing this block. So it's sort of like a, sort of like a transaction compression mechanism or something like that. So you need, you, you need these regular interactions. Uh, and so, so what that means is you don't get instant transactions with Plasma, right? Because you need to wait for these, these block routes to settle on the main chain. Um, so for instant transactions, you need channels. There's kind of no way around that. It's sort of a tautology. But some of the upsides to Plasma is, uh, well, first of all, the scalability there is cool because in theory, no matter how big the Plasma blocks are, all you need is this constant side root, this constant sized root on the main chain. In the optimistic case, in the pessimistic case, you have to do some Merkle, some Merkle proof stuff, but that's still just like log of the number of transactions. So there's some really strong scalability potential there. And also you don't, necessarily have the same sort of liquidity uh, requirement that something like Lightning does. So with Lightning, you sort of have, you sort of lock up this capital in channels and that capital is sort of collateralizing these payments directly. So this, you know, you run into some possibilities of routing limitations where you have to find 
a path of liquidity. Also, you need inbound capacity to receive things and things like that. So that's one of the upsides to Plasma is you don't have to deal with those things. But yeah, I mean, there's various there's various trade-offs involved. So, you know, I've written about, I mentioned I wrote something for the block about Plasma and speaking more generally, it's like, um, I think it's a really valuable construction and I think it's very cool, but I think it's also fair to say that it's a little more, it's trickier and more complex maybe than people initially realized. And uh, so there's a lot of, there's sort of this game of, you know, um, I think the way I described it in that piece is it's like, you know, trying to push a carpet into a room that's slightly too small for it, where you kind of fix one thing and something else pops up. So some of the problems involved, just to give a to give a general sense, are you have this, you end up having to manage a lot of data, even as a user, because you sort of, and the size of this data you have kind of grows over time. You need some sense of the history of what's going on on this plasma chain so that you can guarantee you'll be able to withdraw. So that's one of the, some of the optimization work is minimizing that. And then the initial constructions, you mentioned the initial white paper, which was Vitalik and uh, uh, Joseph Poon who's one of the co-creators of Lightning, actually. In the initial construction, there's actually a much bigger problem, which is you can have a scenario where you're sort of forced, where everybody on the Plasma chain is forced to exit onto the main chain, which is a serious, pretty much a deal-breaking issue, actually. That's like, when people talk about Plasma now, they're referring to like Plasma Cache, which is an alternative construction, which avoids that. But um, yeah, there's a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of little things to solve there. But I guess one sentence version is like non-custodial sidechain is sort of what Plasma, what Plasma does. Understood there. Uh, thanks for going into that for me. So you were kind of going into some of the reasons why, you know, maybe it's still in a kind of pre-alpha state, would you say? I would say at this point, I think like the research has project uh, has progressed a lot. And I think like there's a better understanding of like what it can and can't do or sort of, you know, what approaches are dead ends and things like that. I would say there, there's still certain things that aren't necessarily entirely solved, but you might just say that's okay, it's good enough. But the worst case scenarios aren't, you know, worst case scenario might just be a user has to store a lot of data at one point or so, uh, but it's not, yeah, it's, I would say it's not like 100% solved. The issue is even with the sort of research questions in place, um, again, this more kind of academic level, implementation is difficult. So that's still, that's still going to take more time. So some of the, you know, some of the focus like a lot of the projects that were doing plasma things have have shifted gears or at least shifted emphasis and focus on some some alternative constructions if you've seen this like the new the new kind of buzzword hotness is like optimistic rollup which is a related construction but it sort of solves some of these tricky things and that's one that is it's a lot simpler as one of its benefits and it's definitely you know it's easier to reason about it's something we can do now it just doesn't quite have the same scalability benefits as plasma so happy to Happy to go into that. My basic feeling about Plasma is I, I think it's a very powerful construction. I hope it's not abandoned because I think the potential scalability benefits and throughput are um, are pretty awesome there. But yeah, it's probably safe to say that it was like hyped a little too strong too soon. And there were, you know, additional problems kind of emerged over time that that slowed things down. And certainly the, I'll also just say this, the original white paper, I don't recommend reading it. It's pretty weird because it's like, it's very long and there's sections in it that are like very out there and kind of speculative and maybe this, and there's stuff they talk about in there that like no one's pursued, like this idea of like nested plasma chains, which is kind of crazy. So I think it had like the seed of some, some ideas that were worth pursuing in there, but a better place to start is, I mentioned plasma cache, but uh, there's a, a Georgios Konstantopoulos, I think it's his name, it's a Greek name, something like that. Um, who's a layer two scalability researcher kind of focusing on the Ethereum space. And um, he does a lot of great work, but he, he put together a plasma cache white paper. Um, if people are interested, I would, I would start there because that gives you a good starting point as for what, 
what paths have been pursued. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I think it stands now. And I think it makes sense that at least for the short term, people are shifting to this, this roll up stuff, which we can get into if you want. Something that you mentioned before was the concept that kind of alluded to that eventually maybe something like plasma can make it over to Bitcoin. You know, the, the longstanding idea in, in Bitcoin land, I think, is that, you know, if Bitcoin wins, it's going to end up eating all other, you know, crypto technology, everything else will kind of fold in to the Bitcoin in some way. So you kind of mentioned that Plasma might be able to make it over to Bitcoin. You want to kind of just lay out how, how that might work or what that might look like and if any big changes would need to happen, et cetera? Sure. So uh, again, I'll mention him again, not to keep dropping his name, but this researcher, George, let's just call him George SK, he's looked into this specific question and uh, he spoke, he gave a talk about this exact question at, a, at um, one of the Bitcoin conferences recently. I forgot which one. I don't think he's published it yet, but hopefully he does. What it comes down to, so yeah, is, is this possible? It's definitely not possible now. So the question is, what would have to change? What, what protocol change would Bitcoin need to support something like Plasma? And more importantly, of course, it's possible to change the protocol any way you want, right? But is it a sort of limited and conservative enough change that it would sort of, you know, be acceptable to Bitcoiners, essentially? Uh, because as you say, with Bitcoin, it, there's, yeah, there's both the sense that, hope you know, I think with like hardcore Bitcoiners have the sense that it will eat all this technology, but also that it's the most conservative. So there's a bit of a trade-off to be had there. Um, okay, so as far as Plasma, so he's the, he's the guy to look at. You should really watch his talk. A lot of this, I'm just repeating his findings, but you need at least a few things. And then one of them to me is like very uncertain about how this would actually work. But one thing you definitely need to be able to do is verify Merkle proofs on chain, because this is this is just how you show inclusion or exclusion of trend of these plasma cash transactions uh, within the block. There is an opcode, I think it's opcat that uh, lets you do this, basically does like string concatenation. But interestingly, it was actually removed from Bitcoin already. <laughs> and there was some, there was, a, it was considered a bit risky. There was some little loophole, some exploit you could do with it. So they took it out. So that would be the thing to look into is, is there a way to bring back opcat? And I think being able to verify Merkle groups on chain would be useful for all sorts of things, even some of the more state chain related constructions and things like that. So, so that's one thing you also need. So I guess the fundamental difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum has to do with this notion of state, the state of Bitcoin, so to speak, is the set of all UTXOs, right? All the unspent transactions. And what you can do with that on Bitcoin is, uh, is more limited, right? On Ethereum, you have this more generalized notion of state and uh, it's hard to define what we mean by state, but you know, um, the current state of affairs, whatever. What was I getting at? Right. Okay. So in the case of Bitcoin, in, in, in order to do something like Plasma Cash, you kind of, you effectively need to be able to mutate some state or at least do something like that. With Bitcoin, you have these UTXOs and essentially all you can do with a UTXO is uh, a transaction spends it and creates new UTXOs or it fails and it doesn't, right? The the scripting comes in, specifying what the rules are for that. Uh, and those, you know, that's where uh, you can do this Bitcoin script stuff. But you can't, you can't actually mutate a UTXO. You can just sort of consume one and create another. So for Plasma Cash, for these exit games I mentioned, you have to do, you have to essentially have the state evolve. To do that on Bitcoin, you need some sort of covenants. And this is another proposal that has all sorts of use cases and comes up in a lot of Bitcoin tech or any, any like UTXO based chain. So what covenants let you do, broadly speaking, is you can specify the rules of how to spend a UTXO. And within those rules, it says when you create a new output, it sort of carries over some of the old rules with it. 
So in other words, you're not literally mutating state, but you effectively are. I don't know if that makes sense, but the point is you would need something like that in order to handle these, to handle these changes. Covenants are a complex topic and I'm not an expert in this, but I think the, the debate around them is how do you introduce something like that without just adding all sorts of weird loopholes and complexity? Because you could start to do weird recursive tricks with covenants where now suddenly you can do these almost like denial of service sort of attacks where suddenly these transactions become way, way harder to validate than you wanted. So that's an interesting area of research, but you need some version of covenants for, for Plasma. And I would say the last part, and this is where it gets a lot trickier, and really you should just talk to Georgios, because I think he may have figured out some cool way to handle this, but you kind of need a way to read state directly, which again, with Bitcoin, the design decision is that you can't do that. You can spend transactions or not, but you can't like get information about transactions without spending them. And you sort of need to be able to do this in order to read these, these block routes. Of the, of the plasma chain. So in Ethereum, they're stored in state and state is the part that you can just read directly via smart contract. Uh, in Bitcoin, again, there's this design decision where you can't do that. So you can't just allow that. If you just allow that, that has all sorts of other implications and it might just mean like Bitcoin devolves into Ethereum and that's certainly not something Bitcoiners want. I understand that. Um, whether there's some limited way to get that so that you can read block routes, if, if there's a way to do that, that would be required as well. So uh, yeah, look for look for Georgios here. If he hears this, maybe this can be considered some uh, some peer pressure for him to publish this. But I certainly welcome more discussion around this because I think this plasma stuff is very cool, and I think you know different. Hopefully, you know these different cryptocurrencies, different communities can find their find their ways of benefiting from it. Not to get too kumbaya. <laughs> right. Uh, absolutely. I do appreciate you kind of laying that out there for me. So as far as I know, too much. There isn't too much usage of. Uh, layer two solutions on Ethereum. Uh, something that um, has come up quite a bit in 2018, 2019, was the Ethereum people have something called DeFi Pulse, which would compare, you know, their uh, different DeFi uh, projects or whatever against Lightning. And very often they'd be like, oh, look, look at you guys. There's, you know, you know, 500 BTC in WBTC, but there's only, you know, however much in Lightning, you guys are falling behind. Mm -hmm. But then if you look at their, you know, the Ethereum Lightning or Plasma or any of this stuff, I think it's, you know, Plasma is not even operational yet. And I think the Ethereum Lightning is not operational. Do you have any insight into any of that? Sure. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, I agree, at least with your implication there, which is that that is a very silly comparison. The idea of comparing DeFi Pulse to something like Lightning, this is not at all apples to apples. Uh, also, the DeFi Pulse, I think their their metric was like the amount of capital locked in DeFi. And what is that? I don't even know what that means. It's not really. So it gives you a vague sense of activity there, but certainly it's not comparable to Lightning. So yeah, I don't really take that very seriously. And yeah, I mean, as you say, the things to if, if we want to compare the two of them, the things to compare would be the more uh, some of these channels and channel networks that are going on on Ethereum, which exist, but certainly Lightning is getting more use than them still. The ones to look at, so there was Raiden, which is something very similar to Lightning. In fact, the name is sort of a little in-jokey reference to Lightning there, which is live, but very limited use case last I checked. And that is like strictly payment channels. I think the one to really look at is Connects, which I think I, I mentioned earlier, which they're doing really good stuff. Um, and again, I've used I've used that. And that is, there was sort of, at some point, there was sort of like a universal standard that was agreed upon, this 
this like state channel standard in Ethereum, sort of the equivalent of like the Bolt spec and Lightning, I guess. So they're sort of compliant with that and within that. And that, yeah, they have a system that's, you can transfer, you can transfer Ether, but also ERC-20 stuff like DAI with Connects. So it's, it's definitely being built out. It's getting some use, but um, not on the level of Lightning. Um, we'll see how it plays out. And yeah, as you say, the Plasma stuff, I mean, there are implementations out there. There's stuff on testnet and um, there's some great teams working on it. And I think we will see stuff happen, but I, I think it's definitely fair to say that it was uh, harder than was anticipated and it's taken longer than was anticipated and probably will be seeing um, sooner than Plasma, we'll be seeing some of this roll-up stuff happen because that's just sort of easier to build. Yeah, I mean, the Ethereum layer two stuff, it's, it's, it's happening. Things are moving forward. Definitely not as much use as Lightning, but... Uh, but we'll see. I look forward to both of them growing. And I think that I'm also very interested in some of the possible possible interoperability between them, between the channel networks and also between these other side chains and trustless side chains across different chains. I think they can complement each other kind of nice. A kind of philosophical question here for yeah. you. Do you think Lightning on Bitcoin or Bitcoin on Lightning has uh, earned its first uh, mover advantage and now Bitcoin on Lightning is going to be you know, the number one uh, off-chain solution or layer two solution out of the entire crypto space. Is that going too far? Um, I don't know. I'm sort of, uh, you know, I would say maybe, but I'm sort of still agnostic to that, I guess. I think it's less, my instinct is it's less dependent on sort of layer two tech and lightning than it is on Bitcoin itself, right? Bitcoin itself obviously has a first mover advantage and, uh, there's the question of, you know, whether that will hold up and whether that will retain its monetary premium. I don't know. I'm not good at making predictions. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's probably from, from talking about this that I'm sort of um, very interested and in some ways optimistic and bullish about some of these other layer two constructions. I think that there's a place for them. So that is where Ethereum can sort of carve out its territory. But um, I don't know. I tend to not really see these things as in this zero-sum battle so much. So. Uh, I don't know. And I, I, yeah, either. I don't particularly care what I'm running, I guess, <laughs> to be honest. Fair enough. I've used Ethereum in the past. I've sent ERC-20s around. I've done, you know, all the all the nonsense you might do with Ethereum. But I guess at this point in time, I just don't care. Like, I, I keep you know, going over there, spying stuff that excites me, and none of it really does. You know, lightning <laughs> stuff excites me. There seems to be stuff actually going on. Um, obviously, I'm in my bubble over here, so you know maybe I'm missing all kinds of really fun stuff happening on Ethereum. I, I honestly don't think so. But <laughs> do you think you know talking about Ethereum here? You know maybe the biggest thing that I still have a problem with, and I think a lot of Bitcoiners mm -hmm. have a problem with, is the original launch of Ethereum mm -hmm. and a lot of the negative things that I think uh, happened there. Uh, primarily the mm -hmm. the pre-mine that the Ethereum founders or whoever gave to themselves, essentially. Do you have any particular opinion about that kind of contrast versus Bitcoin's fairer launch, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, it does, it does sort of make me uncomfortable as well. Uh, I kind of go back and forth about how much it truly matters. I will say this. So the Ethereum, uh, the, the Ethereum Foundation's pre-mine, if I'm not mistaken, ends up being around 10% of the supply, which is a lot. There was sort of another, I mean, this is, I guess, <laughs> I already said something controversial. It depends what you consider the pre-mine versus pre-sale and so on. But what I'm getting at is there's this other chunk that was sold initially, right, to these early investors. If information does come out that part of, that, like a significant part or really of any part of that sale to other investors was just sort of circling back directly to the Ethereum Foundation, that would be pretty serious and that would be pretty bad. So 
I certainly welcome more transparency on that. Even as is, I guess the part that I go back and forth on here is to what extent, like, to what extent initial allocation matters to the future of a network, uh, to the future of a, of a, you know, this like digital asset, a monetary network. And I'm not sure. Um, it's definitely not ideal. So I, I do agree with a lot of these criticisms. Like I'm not, you know, I don't know. I'm not someone who's just going to like, some diehard Ethereum defender or anything. But as far as initial distribution, like in practice, what actually happens here is sort of the question. Does wealth just sort of stay concentrated in these little silos or does it kind of circle in relatively quickly? I'm not sure. Empirically, it seems like it's more of the latter. You know, um, I think like the initial distribution of Bitcoin might be as fair as it can be. And even that, of course, you're going to end up with, there's a sort of arbitrary element to it, right? Of about who, who mines early and things like that. Um, so I don't know. I'm sort of giving a wishy-washy rambly answer because I don't really have a great answer for that other than, yeah, things like the pre-mine definitely makes me a bit uncomfortable. It's not ideal. And I've just welcomed more transparency around that generally. Um, I just don't see it as a deal breaker. And I like my general feeling about Ethereum is it seems to me that, um, and this is something I think some Bitcoiners miss, is that even though you know, there's certainly a lot of bullshit going on that has gone on over the years in the Ethereum space. But like, you know, frankly, that's true of anything in the crypto space. Uh, if you just sort of focus on the good, there is a lot of real interesting work going on that is a direct result of the technology itself, which is to say having this flexibility on the base layer means that more protocols are possible. So a lot of these interesting protocols, especially the layer two stuff, which is what I'm interested in, can sort of use Ethereum tech to actually come to fruition, which is, I think, cool. And it sort of like seems worth it to me even though it has a bunch of other complications. There's the sort of complications on the social level, let's just say, that you alluded to with the Spreemine and the Ethereum Foundation's role and even Vitalik's role. There's, of course, technical complications and things like that. It just, it seems to me like it's a, it's a messy experiment that's worth doing, I guess would be the like very diplomatic way of saying it. Well, here's, here's the question I would ask, I think, and I think the reason why Please. even the, pre, the, the pre-mine itself becomes more of an issue is... How Ethereum fans or Ethereum folks like to promote. Very often I see on Twitter that Ethereum people will be like, Ethereum is sound money. That seems counterfactual to the, you know, what what Bitcoin's kind of model of what sound money is. That you don't mm-hmm. you don't have a pre-mine. You don't, you know, uh, do all these things that effectively gives power to a small group of people. You know, you, you know they might make the argument that Satoshi had a effective pre-mine or post-mine or, you mm-hmm. know, something like that because no one else was around. So it's the same thing. And I don't agree agree with any of that. So do you think there's a kind of ideological gulf there that, you know, uh, uh, both Bitcoin and Ethereum folks kind of ideologically want similar things, but kind of live in different realities trying to get to the same place kind of? Yeah, there's something to that. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, first of all, it's interesting. In the past, like, year or so, there was this growth of, like, Ethereum maximalists, which didn't seem to exist before. But, there, yeah, there is this small group of very vocal people who are, you know, they're, they're sort of, like, almost mirroring some of the strategies of the more, I don't know, the more, like, harsh and vocal Bitcoin maximalists. And I'm, I'm just certainly not in that camp, is, 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 the, short, is the short answer. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I tend to be pretty critical of a lot of things about Ethereum myself and criticize some of those people for those claims. I think that specific line you mentioned is, yeah, the idea, this sort of angle, this like argumentative strategy that 
Ethereum is sound money insofar as Bitcoin is, doesn't really make sense. The pre-mine is one wrench into that. Another one is just the fact that the monetary policy has changed over time and is likely to again. So the, you know, the sort of miner's reward has decreased via these forks. And, and, you know, once there's a switch to proof of stake, I think there's still some uncertainty as to what the exact schedule looks like in terms of supply. So that is a clear difference. And if you don't want to define sound money in this way of having a strict and predictable supply, I mean, it's just, it doesn't even really seem debatable that that's definitely Bitcoin has Ethereum beat in that way. So yeah, I don't see any argument there. I think just like tactically, if you're just going to be a diehard Ethereum defender, uh, which again, I'm not, but what I would say to those people, a better tactic is like, you know, we're just sort of not ready to commit to a strict supply schedule. So like, yes, it's more fast and loose, but in general, Ethereum's more fast than loose, right? Um, there's more of a sense of like, we're still experimenting, we're still getting it right. There's going to be a pretty drastic change to the technology itself soon with this, you know, sharding and proof of stake and things like that. You know, it's it's sort of in a phase, it's, it's sort of still evolving. And that's like part of the identity of Ethereum is that at least relative to Bitcoin, it's a little more, we're willing to be more experimental or something like that. Whereas Bitcoin's more, we want to sort of already push really hard towards being relatively speaking set in stone and conservative. So I, I guess what I'm saying is like, in other words, I think like having both of those exist, I don't know why I'm trying to be so diplomatic, but I just find myself doing that. Having both of those exist seems, seems good to me. I think Bitcoin has a very important place in this and Ethereum has an important place and having the more conservative sort of monetary asset, let's say, that sort of has these these monetary properties that you describe, and having one where we sort of push the technology of cryptocurrency and crypto economics and, and you know, this new cryptography with snarks, we have this currency where we can sort of experiment with that in this other direction, which also necessarily means that, yeah, the, mon the, the nature of the money itself is going to evolve too. You know, if that makes people uncomfortable, that, I mean, that's fine. And, you know, you don't have to like it or you don't have to use it. You certainly don't have to own any. I'm more of the, I, I would more lean into that than to try to make the silly argument of like Ethereum's more, you know, it's more the Austrian money or something. It's just, it seems all a bit silly. Got it. So you had kind of mentioned the idea that uh, Ethereum has, you know, changed their monetary policy in the past. And one mm -hmm. of the uh, rebuttals to that I've seen is, so as Bitcoin, they fix their buffer overflow bug. Do you think that's a fair rebuttal or is that total bullshit? No, I don't think that's equivalent. No. So basically I don't. I don't think that's equivalent. I think if sort of taking this aside from like the Bitcoin versus Ethereum debate, I guess I do think that these, there is a, a bit of nuance in there that, that often doesn't get, that doesn't get addressed. So, you know, yes, fixing something like the buffer overflow or fixing the more recent, you know, the more recent CVE, I guess this was last year that could have led to inflation. What's sort of going on there um, on the Bitcoin side is the, um, in a very indisputable way, the particular software instantiation doesn't reflect what is effectively this social contract that Bitcoiners have about what it is, right? There's there's no one who actually thinks that you should be able to, you know, double spend within a block and inflate the supply. That's indisputable. We can just say that. So updating the software, which like is technically a hard fork, um, there's a sense that that is different than updating the software to say, uh, well, after the DAO hack, let's say, right, to actually change the state or to change the inflation. Like, I I, I don't think those are the same at all. The tricky part, and I'm, I'm curious sort of what your thoughts are on this to me is that one thing that I think about often and sort of struggle with the the fact that that was possible the fact that you know there was this potential inflation bug in Bitcoin and you know this patch was released and it worked the bug wasn't exploited the fact that that's possible is actually really important 
Uh, you could even go a step farther and say, if it wasn't possible to do something like that, um, and you know, you can just focus on those two examples we mentioned, uh, Bitcoin would be dead by now, right? And to me, I sort of, I when I think about Bitcoin, when I think about its security model, I just think we need to include that in it. And what I, one of the things that I see with a lot of people, some people I should say, certainly not all of them, but some people in the Bitcoin space, there's a resistance to even mention that, and there's this sense of, you know. The social level is is totally separate from the protocol, and the whole point of Bitcoin is to eliminate that social level. And there's no Bitcoin community, right? There's no um, and I think that's like that's half true, right? It it is indeed true that the point of Bitcoin is to minimize that level. Without that, you know, I mean, I think like Nick Sabo articulated this pretty well in that social scalability essay. This is sort of what it all comes down to: is to not have to do this kind of bureaucratic decision making process as much. But I kind of think in a way that essay, a lot of people mentioned that and it was very influential. It was almost like too influential for its own good because the social scalability you get from Bitcoin is not infinite, nor do you want it to be. Like we need to actually be able to do these changes on a social level. Um, so I don't know. Uh, if, if I, even, even mentioning the phrase Bitcoin community makes a lot of people just like bristle and cringe. But to me, that is an important thing. There are decisions to be made. And it's not just about fixing these concrete bugs. There's, you know, there's going to be Schnorr signature, there's going to be Taproot, there's there's changes the protocol will make. We may have to do something for quantum resistance at some point. And let's just acknowledge the fact that like there are human beings that have to make these decisions. And to me, that has to just be a part of of, of how we think and talk about this. But yeah, anyway, I, I don't know. I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on all of that. You know, typically I'm not the one answering questions on the podcast here. So uh, please, yeah, I try to yeah, turn it around. Please forgive me here, but um, <laughs> it's kind of a tough one. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot, obviously, but I guess like it's just, it, it, it seems to be this gap. And I, I, I will say this, that um, I think maybe just by necessity, this, this discussion is more, Ethereum community is more amenable to this type of discussion. Again, part of it's just pragmatically by necessity because these sorts of social level changes happen much more frequently and often in Ethereum. Yeah, I just think that is something we have to consider. I think um, uh, uh, Hasu, if I'm saying that right, I don't mean to keep name dropping, by the way, but he's sort of spoken, I think, very eloquently about this. And he is one of the people I see as taking this seriously. And yeah, I, I just think it's not totally black and white. And you can sort of have, you can have both and you can acknowledge that we want let's say governance, that's a scary word, but you know, this decision-making process to be minimized and to be strict. Uh, and then most Ethereum people would say that that is the goal eventually too. They just think like, we're not there yet or something. You want it to be minimized, but you actually don't want it to quite be at zero. And um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't sort of settled on the right way to think about this, but that is something I, I sort of wrestle with. So yeah, I just think it's like a double-edged sword. I'm probably not technical enough and not... I feel like I would need a lot more kind of thought and preparation to really answer that as well as I would prefer. Yeah, it's very difficult. Um, I guess I don't necessarily envy the Ethereum folks that have a larger attack surface or a, you know, just more complicated protocol that, you know, you have all these different ways of potentially breaking stuff, of being able to steal stuff through their smart contracts, like it happened with the DAO. If let's say something similar were to happen with uh, Bitcoin, so rather than, you know, a buffer overflow bug that happens to the protocol itself. So, yeah, let's imagine that uh, billions of dollars were was stolen off some exchange and one particular Bitcoin developer was involved and, um, you know, they're very upset and they really want to try to get their money uh, recovered. 
So they they try to you know get everyone on Bitcoin Twitter to agree with them to uh, you know some kind of hard fork to reverse this because oh my god this is the biggest loss amount of funds ever. I don't think anyone would listen to this person and be like up oh, tough shit your money's gone. You know, we're not going to help you do anything. And now you're ostracized because you're trying to, you know, change something within Bitcoin. A hard fork, you know, by itself is a big thing, but you're trying to change transactions around and no, go fuck yourself. Do you think this is probably the the accurate thing that would happen here? <laughs> that seems like, yes, that the scenario you described, I think, is is entirely easy to imagine. So I think, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Like any any situation... Any situation equivalent to the DAO hack on Bitcoin is is certainly a lot less likely. I, I would just, I mean, one thing I would throw in, I think it's certainly less likely now to happen on Ethereum than it was then, but it's certainly still, it's still more within the realm of possibility. I guess that sort of situation though, I mean, so yeah, I think that's true. That sort of situation, I think, is less of what interests me and less of what I find tricky than, so the situation of, again, just reversing what is effectively a valid transaction. Less interesting to me than, again, just fixing what is, unanimously agreed to be a concrete bug, right? Which has happened. So Bitcoin's capable of doing this, obviously. And I think that's good. And also some of these just more general network upgrades that we might desire. Like I mentioned, Schnorr and Taproot and maybe some privacy upgrade in the future. I don't know. Would there be, would there ever be a reason why a bug could not be fixed? Like, is there a, you know, where that social layer or that social aspect just evaporates? Would there ever be a reason why that happens? That's a good question. And it's it's almost what's tricky about this is in some weird way, like if there's some wild out there dream of, let's say, decentralization that takes place, that would kind of prevent it, right? Like if there's no way, if if the people mining or, you know, more to the point running nodes are so like distributed and far and wide that we actually can't coordinate any upgrades anymore, this would be impossible. Uh, when I say that's a dream, it's like, I don't know how many people would even describe that as an ideal, but I think implicitly some of them do. And that's where I just go, like, I don't think that's quite the ideal we want. I think the the, the trickier one, like, I think the way we see it is actually pretty similar. I, I don't even know if we totally disagree. I would just say, like, I agree with you. You don't want this, whatever you want to call this, this sort of softer social level to be able to make arbitrary changes. But clearly we want some changes to be able to happen. And I think it's it seems to me it's sort of healthier for the network's future and it's more, it's just better to just sort of acknowledge that and be able to think about it directly than to just deny it. What scares me more is just denying that that happens at all. And again, of course it does. There's upgrades that are being talked about right now. Um, uh, if you sort of deny it, then it seems that there's a risk of, okay, well, what's actually going to change about Bitcoin and and, and who's going to decide? It's, it's almost like if there's this unacknowledged power vacuum, things can... Um, that's where governance capture can take place. And just to be clear, I'm not suggesting, I'm certainly not suggesting any like on-chain governance mechanism. I think that's the worst idea in all of this. I'm not even suggesting a more like formalized governance mechanism, but it does, it just sort of um, concerns me when I see people who just get angry if you even try to sort of point this out or try to direct attention to these to these questions. Um, it, it seems like an important thing to be able to, to be able to talk about. I don't think anyone's really figured out how to do this right because it's because it's tricky but this is probably something that was like i think even a few years ago this was harder to see and for years ago it was easier to just sort of brush all of this off and say you know that's not what we do we don't you know we don't make decisions as <laughs> on this on this social level but that's clearly a part of these things i think that's okay i don't think that sort of destroys the value proposition i think it'll matter moving forward and uh i mean one of the interesting examples that i just mentioned um is the interesting examples to me is this idea of privacy on layer one 
I don't know where you stand on this, but I, and more and more, I just think, uh, I mean, again, the projects I care about are Bitcoin and Ethereum, certainly more than any others, but I, um, I follow some of what's going on in these privacy coins as well. And I think I'm very interested in the, in the technology itself. And I'm increasingly of the mindset that privacy and we just need better privacy on layer one. And I'm a little concerned that with both Bitcoin and Ethereum, that just doesn't really seem to be, you know, on the roadmap, so to speak. The general ethos in both is like, we'll have privacy layers, we can have layer two things, we can have, you know, uh, side chains or mixers and things like that. And that's all well and good, but I'm sort of nervous that that's not quite enough. This is just like a fundamental thing that we want to preserve is privacy and having it be sort of opt-in might just lead to some very bad results. So, and I think there's a lot of Bitcoiners who are sort of of that mindset too. There's a lot who very much aren't, but I could see this debate really I could see this being sort of the next big debate within Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, I'm just curious to see how that plays out. And that, I mean, that is one example where if the inertia is just, look, we're not going to change the protocol, so we're not going to change the protocol. That is a, I could see some changes in that regard that are potentially beneficial that I'd like to see happen. And I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, to see how that discussion happens moving forward. I would like to kind of bring up a uh, contrast here and some, yeah, some uh, examples. So I'm sure you're aware of, um, I'm not sure if it's considered a layer two or an off-chain solution or not, but um, Matt from, it's basically the Ethereum slash Bitcoin guy that's building TBTC. Yes, uh, Matt Luengo, yeah. is that the, I think the right guy? So he's the same gentleman that I can't remember at what particular conference, but at a conference, he kind of threw out the um, idea of adding like tail inflation to Bitcoin, I think. And he was he was very popular for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. I remember that that Twitter drama of the day. Yes, I forgot that was him. Yeah. yeah. And so, I, I mean, even though I, I feel like there's like a trillion good arguments against it, I mean, it was, in retrospect, it's probably a good idea that people bring this stuff up sometimes, even if, if it's, no, it's a horrible idea, stop, is the response. Because I it's just good to talk about it and just kind of understand where we are in the world. But I feel like it's, it's very related to the privacy aspect that you kind of mentioned the, you know, let's add mm-hmm. tail inflation or let's add privacy. But I'm sure as you're aware the biggest um, trade-off with privacy on the base layer is auditability. And mm-hmm. the one thing that I happen to be a huge proponent of, and I think a lot of people that are into Bitcoin's Austrian uh, traits is a predictability of future supply that I should be able to just pick a random date, you know, 25.3 years in the future, you know, pick a time of day Mm -hmm. and it'll be approximately that amount of Bitcoin in the future on that time and date, you know, not exactly there's variance, you know, whatever, but it'll be basically correct. And I don't know what other cryptocurrency can really claim that. You know, sure, other ones can make some amount of uh, similar claims, but I feel like Bitcoin is still the gold standard when it comes to that kind of predictability. Do you generally mm-hmm. agree with that, that the 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 tension there is very difficult to overcome, that I don't, I want privacy, you know, if there was a way to get, you know, Monero or confidential transactions or some similar privacy enhancements on Bitcoin, that'd be great. But I would practically want to guarantee, which I don't think is possible, that audibility is 
intact. I think there's good ways to make it very unlikely that it's affected, but I, again, I'm not super technical in the privacy arena, but as far as I know, there's not a strong way to make that, you know, near 0%. Yeah, so I think I think that's right. That is that is the tension, right? And that's what it's going to come down to is any any increase on chain to privacy will in some way decrease audibility almost by definition, right? Um, so there's going to be a trade off there. And there's certainly some trade offs that I don't expect or even want Bitcoin to make in that direction. Uh, the obvious thing to bring up would be Zcash in this case, which, you know, I think Zcash snarks are really cool and awesome. But, um, you know, there was literally an inflation bug. And that is a direct result of the complexity of this, you know, kind of crazy moon math cryptography that they do. So um, that's certainly crossed the line of anything I would expect to happen on Bitcoin. What I would say, though, and this is definitely getting into like unpopular opinion territory is, you know, when you talk about predictability of supply, so obviously having a having like a supply is just necessary for any scarce uh, for any resource of value, right? It has to be scarce. Having predictability of supply. I mean, yes, I think Bitcoin has that stronger than any um, than any cryptocurrency and acknowledge that that is like part of the core value proposition, right? The unpopular opinion part to me is I would say that like we can consider this uh, fixed supply and audibility to be fundamental to what Bitcoin is. I actually think privacy has to be considered fundamental as well, because at a certain point, you know, ultimately what this is about is disintermediation and autonomy. And in the extreme case where privacy is like totally lost, you know, which is a silly scenario to imagine, but let's just say every single Bitcoin transaction is linked to an individual and there's no way to use it privately, just this nightmare scenario. That is, to me, fundamentally breaking it um, in the same way that, you know, um, an inflation bug is, is fundamentally breaking it. So there is a trade-off there, but I just don't see it as absolute in one direction. And yes, it is true that any change in privacy, I think implicitly is going to mean less audibility. But um, I think the trade-off doesn't just go 100% for me. Um, now, again, I think something like Zcash should be out of the question, something like that, that level of Zcash snarks, at least like until maybe in the future when that cryptography is just very ironed out, that will change, but certainly not now. But other potential privacy solutions, you get more, you, you, you get better guarantees of things like total supply audibility. Things like the Mimble Mimble protocol comes to mind. Um, again, there's a trade-off there, but you can, you can audit. I mean, in, in that example, I believe, I'm not a sort of privacy specialist either, so I don't want to speak totally out of turn. But in that case, you actually can get information about the total supply because you effectively see Brock rewards and then you can see that each transaction doesn't spend more than it received, uh, which does to some extent give you a guarantee. But again, it is a privacy solution, which means more stuff is handled either with encryption or off chain. So yeah, that's another thing I'm sort of torn about. And um, you know, I see I see this sort of come up in Bitcoin circles and I see that even Bitcoiners are torn about this. So I'm interested in seeing how it how it plays out. But I have to say more and more, I'm like, whatever happens, we should really move towards doing better than, than we're doing now. And I think this is true of Bitcoin and Ethereum, basically equally. But yeah, you know, I, I sort of, the fact that that's a minority opinion does concern me a little because I don't want these things to turn into, you know, surveillance tools. That would be a very sad end to, to all of this. Agreed. I don't necessarily see it likely that privacy is going to be 100% mm-hmm. broken or get to that extreme yeah, point. I agree. But I, that makes a lot of sense though, that if, if, if we do even approach that, then yeah, it's going to be hard to care about the supply at that point because the supply might potentially be be useless. Right, right. So the, the biggest is kind of still talking about privacy. And then let's go ahead, since, we're, mm-hmm. since we are a uh, lightning podcast here, kind of mm-hmm. bridge that gap a little bit. So let's say oh, yeah. that we don't ever really 
add privacy to the base layer. We're, we're kind of stuck with what we have now for forever. Do you think that the layer two ever could serve as a sufficient privacy shield to kind of get what we want? Or is it just a okay tool, but still we're going to need something beyond that? Yeah. So, I mean, again, as far, I think ultimately, as far as layer one changes, I'm increasingly for at least, you know, discussing ways to improve privacy on layer one. Um, layer two privacy is a very interesting topic to me um, and something I'm sort of looking into more and more. I think that something like Lightning, and this I think this also applies to other layer two protocols, although I guess the devil's in the details there, but let's let's stick with Lightning. I think one of the cool things about Lightning is in in you know in a very obvious way you get this nice privacy benefit, which is basically that you know if you want if you're interested in your transactions being private, which you probably should be, you know if your options are either record this transaction on a on an immutable ledger that's very very public and very hard to change forever, or don't, <laughs> you know, uh, not doing that is 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 obviously beneficial. So um, so that's one of these cool kind of free benefits you get from. Um, from something like Lightning is less things recorded means means more privacy. What I will say on the other side of it, though, there's certain ways where there's uh, there's privacy downsides to Lightning. And this is, I think, an interesting area of research and sort of understanding this and improving it, where I guess my general intuition here is that um, obviously you get better privacy on the base layer because there's less going on on the base layer. And for most people, most of the time, that will be an improvement because that's that's the thing you care about most is if I'm sending you money, I don't want you to be able to like look at a block explorer and you know see what I was doing on Saturday or whatever. The the way that privacy can leak with something like Lightning is on this network layer, because with Lightning, you know, you have this sort of additional overlay network uh, on top of Bitcoin, which is kind of already an overlay network. And there's a certain um, there's a certain push and pull here where you the more that you have privacy on the Lightning layer, the uh, there's a trade-off there where the harder it becomes to communicate with other nodes, right? And this makes things like getting snapshots of the state of the network so that you can do peer discovery and route becomes a little bit harder. So in one way, shape, or form, and the devil's in the details again, but um, in one way, shape, or form, if you're using Lightning, you have to kind of advertise your location, right? So that you can establish these connections and make channels. And if someone's really out to get you and really sniffing the network carefully, there's there's various ways privacy can leak. You also, an, another sort of intuitive way to see this is when you're in a lightning channel, in some sense, what you're doing is reusing an address, even though, of course, the transactions aren't falling on chain. Someone can sort of identify aspects of this and connect more things to you than maybe they otherwise could. So I almost wonder if, you know, if for really, really extreme privacy cases... Like if you're, I don't know, like a, a fugitive or something um, where you know people are really carefully looking out to get you. If you really know what you're doing on layer one, privacy might be better. Really know what you're doing. mean, you know, you know how to use, you know how to use mixers, you know about address reuse and linking transactions and all this stuff. Whereas for most people, most of the time, layer two is going to be better. The other thing to say about as far as layer two privacy, and I think some of this is implemented in Lightning now, you may know more about this than I do because I'm not totally up to date, but you can do things like onion routing with Lightning, similar to what Tora does, where at least some of the data that you're sending around um, has these levels of encryption where the different hops along the way don't really see the destination, things like that. And again, I think I think in some of the main Lightning implementations, they're, they're doing that already, which is great. But even there, it's a little bit, um, at the very least, it's more difficult to do. Like doing something like onion routing is more difficult to do in Lightning than with actual, than with Tor, let's say. Simply because without, I don't want to get too into the technical weeds again, and this is, again, privacy isn't my, my main focus, but with something like Tor, what you can essentially say is you don't really care. In some sense, you don't care how the data gets to where it needs to go. What you care about is that it gets there. So if I'm logging onto a site, 
we have these um, these nodes in the Tor network. They kind of pass it around and mix it up. It ends up where it at its destination, you know, an HTTP request, let's say, and then you know this data ends up um, finding its way back to me. I don't really care how it gets there. I just care that it was mixed up enough that that I have this privacy. On some level, in Lightning, you actually do care about the path because you need this path of liquidity along the way. So that's another place where there's only so much you can really obfuscate with with something like onion routing. So um, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a really interesting challenge, and I'm uh, I wouldn't rule out the fact that like maybe there actually is just maybe there really is a solution to this that involves some fancy cryptography. That's definitely a really interesting area of research. Uh, but that, that's where I think it stands now. Is privacy is definitely an improvement with Lightning, but in really really extreme cases, there are there are network level privacy leaks that are that are worth considering. Okay, yeah, definitely. So just to quickly summarize, if your nation states after you. Uh, lightning may not be uh, good enough at, at this point. I think so. I think so. I think that's that's probably the um, yeah. In case any in case anyone who's like wanted by the FBI is listening, that's probably the official advice we should give them. <laughs> All right, sounds good. All right, so and hopefully they're listening through Tor, of course. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a couple more questions. I kind of want to get through them uh, kind of quickly here, just because I think I have three or four more, and I've already had you here for like an hour and a half. Wow, really. Really, that's yeah. goodbye. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, but really please. Did. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of touched on like hard forking for privacy on the base layer. So, um, and we kind of touched on, you know, hard forking for maybe like a tail emission on Bitcoin on the base layer. Mm-hmm. And at the very beginning of the podcast, you had kind of went into the scaling debate and we haven't even touched that yet. You know, we've already had an hour and a half without even really going into that. But without really going into the history of it, because I don't think we have time. Do you think we'll ever see a uh, a block size hard fork on Bitcoin? Ooh, um, interesting. You're just trying to get me to say something controversial here. Um, let's see. Absolutely. I, if I had to bet now, I would say yes. Um, I think it will happen eventually, but certainly not anytime soon. I uh, and I'm not. And before people attack me, I think I you know that's not that I you know I've I've, I've talked to hardcore Bitcoiners who sort of say say a similar thing where it's something that can happen sort of slowly over time um, as uh, as hardware improves and so on. It also, by the way, it might just take place more in the form of a soft fork. Uh, here's where the semantics get kind of tricky, but, you know, SegWit in some sense was a block size increase increase as a soft fork. I think uh, if you go too far in that direction of doing everything with extension blocks, it gets kind of, you get this kind of spaghetti code problem where it gets hard to reason about keeping these implementations up to date. So I think at a certain point, it's actually better to do it as a hard fork. That's definitely not a popular opinion, but um, I if I had to bet, I would say yeah, it'll it'll happen down the line, very incrementally, but at a, at a certain point, it it probably will just make sense. And um, it's hard to imagine that not being. I was gonna say it'll be uncontroversial. That's hard to imagine at this stage, but I do think it'll happen. Uh, what do you think? Not to keep turning it on you, I'm just curious. No, it's fine. I I honestly think it'll happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not gonna put any kind of date or timeline on that because I think that would be absurd to think about it that way. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's right. It's the, the debate really comes down to uh, like block size is sort of the shorthand for how difficult is it to run a node, right? And uh, so it's that, and then also this debate of like this whole process of making decisions and hard forks. We don't want to be too fast and loose. But yeah, I mean, at a certain point, if if if, um, if hardware improves enough that it becomes a lot easier, I think it just it, it'll be a lot less controversial. So yeah, absolutely. So let's let's move on from that particular minefield and move on to a different one. Yeah. 
So um, you contribute to the block and on Bitcoin Twitter or on quote unquote crypto Twitter, uh, the block is very controversial. You know, uh, yeah. the main dude over there gets into all kinds of uh, Twitter drama, etc. Um, I'm not going to get into specifics because I don't really care all that much. Sure. Do you think that that's true that uh, the block gets into a lot of, you know, kind of bullshit <laughs> talks and uh, debates on Twitter? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, I mean, first of all, I just want to make it clear. I've contributed like as an independent contributor to the block. I'm not, I'm not a member or anything, but, um, uh, and I'm, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to separate myself from them or anything, but to, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I've, I've seen exactly what you're talking about. I see these, that they get, um, there's a lot of animosity directed towards the block. And I genuinely, I honestly don't understand it. I don't know this. It just feel it feels very weird to me. It's like they're picked as targets for some reason, and maybe partly, you know, I've I've seen um, the head of the block, uh, uh, Mike Dudas. You know, he he, you know, he definitely like talks a lot of shit and gets into things. But I don't really get the source of this animosity. I have to say, you know, the reason I want to contribute to them is I I do have a lot of respect for the work they're doing. Um, you know, full disclosure, I know some people there. I'm sort of friends with them, but um, I they're definitely very critical of the space at large. I guess, but. They seem to be critical in the right ways to me. There's a few no coiners there, but I, you know, they, a lot of what they say, I agree with, and um, I don't know. I just, I honestly don't really get it. Yeah, I mean, it just, I don't. They don't seem that different than another outfit, other than maybe more critical and maybe take shots. But uh, I almost feel like I'm missing something. Like there was some big something happened that I missed, and then um, I do occasionally get, you know, I get associated with them, so I get sucked into this stuff, but. All I can say is I think they publish a lot of good things and um, I respect what they do. And if, uh, yeah, if I'm missing, if there's some reason I should dissociate with them, I'm happy to hear it. But um, I, it's all a bit of a mystery to me, to be, to be frank. All right. Let's go ahead and move on from that because I don't think we need to talk about that too much. Okay. All right. Uh, at the very beginning of the podcast, you had mentioned, I believe in college, um, you had taken philosophy. Is that right? Or majored in philosophy or am I? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, math and Perfect. philosophy. That was a double so major. I never went to college for philosophy, but philosophy has always been a very uh, big um, interest of mine. You know, we're gonna t let's touch on that very briefly <laughs> before we close out, uh, because I'm I'm planning on creating a second podcast probably mm -hmm. here in the next couple months, and it's going to be primarily related to kind of mm. uh, philosophy, not just philosophy, but kind of those kinds of concepts. Um, and then also kind of touching on things like uh, atheism, religion, psychedelics, and how it might, you know, change your brain state, and a bunch of other kind of interrelated things. Kind of within the kind of mm. uh, philosophy world, you know, what's your maybe biggest, most interesting thing that you keep coming back to or something that, that interested you in college that kind of just keeps, you know, coming up? Sure. So I guess for me, I mean, like I said, it was a double math and philosophy major. So I did focus on some of that overlap, which is, you know, uh, this is not going to be something we can get into briefly, of course. Um, but, you know, um, so some of the like 20th century analytical philosophy, uh, philosophy uh, people like uh, Wittgenstein, Bertrand Russell. Um, um, so I'm very interested in things like philosophy of language and logic and where that overlaps with things like set theory. As far as, um, I guess, some of the less wonky stuff, um, I like a lot of the empiricists. I think Hume was one of my favorite thinkers to read back in college, certainly. He definitely has like a, what I like about Hume without getting into, you know, the specifics of his views that I like, he's also just has a, a relatively low 
tolerance for bullshit, I think. And he's um, fairly readable and straight, straightforward and makes coherent arguments. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I could certainly, I can certainly nerd out about philosophy for a while. So um, I'm, I'm interested to hear, to hear what you do about that. I, I guess one thing I would add as far as um, I'm trying, I'm sort of fishing for some, some connection here between those things I mentioned in the crypto space. And I think one of them, and this gets very abstract, but in terms of things like logic and theory of language, um, you know, I'm also interested, obviously, in programming language theory um, uh, and as it relates to scripting and smart contracts and formal verification. It's interesting. This is a place where some of this very out there, very abstract thinking actually has practical applications. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a very difficult topic, but uh, those are those are some of the things I'm interested in. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Uh, David Hume's a, a very good one, I think. Um, just to throw out one of my favorite quotes ever, and I'm sure you're already aware of this quote, but I just love it so much. A wise man proportions his belief to the evidence, and uh, a big part of my personal philosophy that I like to kind of bring to Bitcoin is that kind of kind of skeptical, uh, evidence-driven belief system that I'm not going to take on beliefs that are, you know, just coming out of thin air or, you know, very little kind of uh, circumstantial evidence, et cetera. Yeah, and I, I try to approach things that way too. You know, it's easy. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of emotions, a lot of tribalism in this space, and um, uh, especially on crypto Twitter, which is its own sort of, nightmare in a lot of ways, but um, I do my best to try to sort that out. And I think a lot of the people that I respect in this space are people who are willing to go against the narrative, willing to sort of think for themselves. And, you know, I'm certainly not perfect in that regard, but uh, I try to do it. I try to sort of take that same approach. That's sort of the only way to, to stay sane, I think. Absolutely. Well, I think maybe we'll have to have you on the uh, philosophy podcast, which the the working title for now is What is Real? Uh-huh. I would I would love to be on and yeah I'm I'm remembering now I saw you posting um a bit about about psychedelics and so on so that's another um another interesting topic I'd be I'd be happy to go into looking forward to seeing that second podcast I hope you I hope you do all right so um I think that's pretty much the end of the podcast you know we're Emma closing out the final question I had is uh, do you have any other kind of thoughts on you know layer two off chain Bitcoin Ethereum you know, the state of the the universe, the state of crypto, the state of Bitcoin, uh, <laughs> the last, you know, 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. How more complicated can I get this question for you? <laughs> um, yeah, let's restrict it a little. I'll, I'll, sure. I'll keep it to crypto. How about that? I'll, I'll keep it to layer two. But yeah, like I said, if there's the sort of general thing I'm interested in doing and interested in sort of seeing happen more and more is some of these um, some of these divides get bridged, even if just at least on a technical level. So if there's people who are who are interested in some of these these uh, these layer two constructions um, that are going on on Ethereum, if there's interest from the Bitcoin side, I would just say, you know, this has nothing to do with being an Ethereum supporter or liking Ethereum or, or anything like that. Um, I just sort of welcome more more technical discussion and more more cross pollination on on sort of getting this thinking in line. So. Yeah, I mean, if anyone is interested in this or, uh, you know, feel free to reach out. Um, I'll just name drop a few other people because uh, I feel like I, I mentioned Georgios, but some other uh, guy to know in this regard is Dan Robinson. Um, he's another researcher who does things across many different projects um, and has made some great contributions. Uh, James Prestwich. I mentioned these people because I just feel like, you know, I've learned a lot from them and um, it's only fair to mention the people I'm ripping off. Even, even um, increasingly, I've seen Eric Wall make some noise on this topic, uh, he's definitely a Bitcoiner, but has an interest in some of this Ethereum tech. So yeah, I just sort of hope to see more of that happen. And uh, feel free to reach out if you have any um, any insights in any of this stuff. Yeah, I think I think um, 
I think we've covered a lot. So maybe we can leave it there. Yeah, like I'm, I'm still thinking um, uh, s- uh, several questions in my head here, and I'm like, should I just ask them anyway? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm gonna stop. We'll save it. We'll save it for the second podcast. How about that? Ag- absolutely. Um, do you want to let everyone know how people can find you on the uh, Twitter.coms? Uh, sure. You can find me at, at dzac 23 on Twitter. And uh, from there, there's a link to my, uh, I have a sub stack where you can just follow things that I write in various places. Um, I haven't written lately, but I should have a few pieces coming out soon that are on the back burner. So. Uh, perfect. Well, I really appreciate you joining me on the Lightning Junkies podcast, Daniel. Thanks. This is a lot of fun. Boom. That was the 18th episode of the Lightning Junkies podcast. Are you ready to crucify me? Should I run for the hills? Should I preemptively delete my Twitter and never return? I think that episode was pretty even-handed and did a pretty good job out of examining the objective reality as close as we can possibly get, I think, and was pretty fair overall, and I don't think I have anything in here that's going to get me killed, but I, I guess we'll see after you guys actually listen to this thing. Either way, I would really enjoy any feedback you had on this particular episode. If you think this is a terrible place for me to go, or if you thought this was an actually positive episode that really, you know, did a good job of showing you the lay of the land, or or at least attempted to. Just a couple quick reminders. If you wanted to go ahead and chip in any money to uh, keeping the podcast active, you can do so using Bitcoin or Bitcoin over Lightning at crowdfund.lightningjunkies.net. You can also do so by going to tipping.me. It's really sad that bottle pays no longer existent, so that option's going to have to get taken off, I guess. But we also have Ellen Cast as well, where you can pay per episode to listen to the podcast episodes using the Lightning Network. If you want to support the episode, please go ahead and chip in some Bitcoin, sign up for SparkSwap if you already have into using my link, or go ahead and leave a review on whatever podcast service you happen to use. The best thing you can do is post about this podcast on your Twitter and help spread the word so more people can, you know, get me being all uh, monotone and dorky into my microphone here. With that being said, I think we're done here. I will see you on that lightning network, sir. Sir, I will see you, see you, see you on the lightning. See you, see you, see you on the lightning network, network, network. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Okay, I'm done. I'll see you on the lightning network.